So if you open your Bibles to Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And we're going to go to chapter 8. And if you follow along, we're going to read through the chapter and then we'll see what the Lord has for us tonight. Beginning in verse 1. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord." Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord God chastens you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive oil and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. An interesting 
portion of scripture about remembering all that the Lord has done for the nation of Israel. Through those 40 years of wanderings, through the crossing of the Red Sea, through all the miracles that the Lord has done for the people, for the children of Israel, and yet they still had to be warned not to forget, not to, not to turn aside from the Lord who provided for them all things that was needful to them. They still had to be reminded not to turn aside and go after other gods. They still had to be reminded not to think prideful that they were the ones who accomplished all of these things, that they were the ones who gained the wealth and prosperity in that land. They still had to be reminded. And I'm saying to us tonight, so do we. So do we. Because I think in a place of prosperity is where we tend to forget God most often. I think in the place where we have what we consider all things of this world is a place where we need to be careful, a place where we need to beware lest we turn aside and look either to other things in this world or to ourselves for what we have. And I wanted to read the entire chapter, even though we're really only going to study one verse, verse 3, because you need to see the context of which this chapter is written. And you know, Deuteronomy is sort of like a, uh, it, it takes all of the books prior and it sort of sets them into motion and gives us an idea of what the, the nation had gone through. And so, in this chapter we see, speaking of the word of God, speaking of their daily bread, speaking of the provision that God had given them, and warning them and warning us to beware lest we turn aside. So if we would go back to verse 3, and I'll reread it, and it says, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is God's instruction in, to Israel in the wilderness. And it's the same as his instruction to us. And it has three features to it. The first feature is to humble us. To humble us. The second is that he allows us to hunger so he can feed us. And then the third aspect of God's instruction is that he points us towards his word. You know, this should be an encouraging word to all of us and really needs to be remembered when we get to the point where we feel like we either have gained all things or as the children of Israel were wandering, lost, aimless in the desert for that many years without direction. I think sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we have no direction in our lives. And we need to know that God's word is here to give us direction. But like anything worth learning, any lessons that are really necessary for us, it, many times it comes through pain. 
You know, I've had people ask me often why they're going through a particular trial. And my answer to them most of the time is that God is trying to teach you something. And oftentimes he does that in times of trial. And we should rejoice in that. We should think about really the full implication of the God of the universe, the creator of all things, that he wants to fellowship with us so much that he would cause or allow something in our lives to cause us to turn back to him so that he can teach us and then bless us. But you may ask, why would God need to humble us before we can be taught these lessons? And I think it's pretty obvious. I think it's because we oftentimes like to maintain control of our lives. We need to, we, we need to have everything in our control. We never like to give it up. We know we, we say that we want God to have control over our lives. We say that we want to lay everything at his feet. We say that famous saying to let go and let God, but do we really live it out? Do we really believe it? And I think sometimes we don't. You see, it's all about God getting us to the point of total dependence on him. And that doesn't come naturally. That's something that God needs to work in us. And many times because of our pride needs to work out of us. And that's what he was showing the nation of Israel in these times. You know, if we really want to be impacted by the word of God in our lives, we need to learn to be teachable. And the first step to teachability is humility. You know, we can have Bible reading schedules and Bible studies and men's groups and women's groups and uh, discipleship meetings and conferences and all of these things. And thank God we do when we offer so many things, so many opportunities to get into the Word of God. But honestly, if we don't humble ourselves and allow God to work in our lives, all of those things will be ineffective in our lives. It's about preparing ourselves to receive from the Lord. And we need to admit our need for Him and our need for His Word so that it becomes so much a part of our lives that we hide it in our hearts and we live it out in our daily walk. So in verse 3, Moses writes, So He humbled you. And the humbling process by God has attached to it a purpose. You know, God doesn't humble us just to disgrace us. He always has a greater intention for our lives. Back in verse 2 it says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You know, God tests us. And it's not to give him any information that he doesn't already know, because as we know, he knows all things. But it's really to prove to us where our heart is. He tests us so we see, we have an accurate depiction of where our heart is with the Lord. 
See, God knows from the beginning how we'll respond to Him. And a lot of times He puts us through a test to reveal to us our weaknesses in a certain area. He'll show us where we think we're strong when in actuality we're weak. And I think in times of of trials, we get to see that more than any other times. You know, and I think also that our pride sometimes gets in the way. You know, when we think we're strong in an area, when we're really weak. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.5, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And we need to remember that. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. See, remember, we're talking about the first aspect of God being able to teach us, and that is humility. God's, all of God's teaching begins here. But sadly, some never even make it past that first step. If we're not humble, then we won't be teachable. Now, let's think about the context in which this scripture is set. The children of Israel are in the wilderness after seeing God's miraculous hand upon them. He parted the Red Sea, brought them out of the bondage of Egypt, and he wanted to teach them some things. It was necessary for God to teach them some things before they entered in to the promised land. And he commands them to remember several important things before he gives them the blessings that he desires to. And I think we need to be mindful of that too. You know, we pray many times for God's blessing upon our, our lives, but are we putting ourselves in a position to receive those blessings? Are we humbling ourselves to the point where we understand our need for him and allowing him to really work those things out in our lives? That he can bless us. So humility is that first lesson. And just a few things about what the Bible says of, of humility. In Proverbs 15, 33, it says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. See, it says there that humility is the precondition to open the way for God to honor us with his blessings. First comes humility, then comes God's blessing in your life. And then in Proverbs 22, verse 4, it says, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor of life. Humility and fear of God are necessary paths that we need to walk down to receive all the good things that God has for us. Are you willing to take that walk of humility in order for God to bless you? That's a question you need to ask yourself. And then in Zephaniah 2.3, it says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And this is not to put God in a box and say, Okay, if I'm meek and humble, then God will protect me or has to protect me. But it does allow for the sovereignty of God in responding to our acts of humility. And we know God's love and we know God's grace. And we know God's promises. 
So why would we not think that if we humble ourselves, would he not bless us and protect us? Now, on the other hand, pride has the opposite effect. It says in Proverbs 11, when pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. You know, it seems as though this proverb is sort of contradictory. Pride and shame seem like opposite emotions. But in God's way of looking at things, pride is shameful because it excludes God from the equation. It removes our dependence on God that he desires all of us to have. And we'll go down in shame if we remain prideful in our relationship with him. And then in Proverbs 16, speaking of pride, it's written, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. See, God is trying to keep us from stumbling, from falling, from destroying our lives. And his desire is to humble us in order to exalt us, as it says in 1 Peter. You know, I like what Matthew Henry, the commentator, says on this. He says, for the mortifying of their pride, it was to humble them, that they might not be exalted above measure with the abundance of miracles that were wrought in their favor, and that they might not be secure and confident of being in Canaan immediately. Now, let me explain what he says there. He says, basically, it was important that the children of Israel remembered that God provided for them in the wilderness. They had to depend on him to sustain them all those years. And it was, they weren't to think that their cleverness would make them prosperous in the promised land. And they were also not to presume that just because of all the great miracles that they had seen, that God had performed throughout their wanderings, that their prosperity in the promised land was assured. See, that would, be, that would have been presumptuous of them. So although they needed to remember that God was the one who provided, they, they couldn't be presumptuous that he would assure that in the promised land. See, the truth is, we not only need to depend on God for, as they did, their physical food, and we do too, But aside from God working in our lives, we're spiritually malnourished. We can't survive spiritually without the word of God. And that's why we come back to the truth that his word will become food for our souls. That's why we need to, as the Bible says, devour the word on a daily basis. You know, John writes in Revelation chapter 10, Give me the little book. Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. You know, John could only proclaim the word of God if he first had taken it in. And that's the same for us. You know, such action by John illustrated the taking in of God's word and his reaction to the sweetness of the anticipation of of God's glory and our victory that was attained at the cross, and at the same time, the bitterness of God's wrath towards those who are disobedient, those who are rebellious. You know, and as we read through the word, we see both of those things. We see the sweetness of his salvation. We see the sweetness of his provision, of his love, of his grace, of his mercy, and we see the bitterness 
of the wrath that he pours out on those who refuse to believe. And both of those things are very important aspects of God's word. It says in Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now I'm sure you're getting hungry with all this talk about food. One thing I wanted to touch upon is the issue of fasting. And just quickly, I'll go, I'll, I want to go over that because it sort of applies to what we're studying in, in this scripture. Because I bet not many of us are willing to miss a meal or two or three. That's why fasting is so difficult. You know, it is biblical and even encouraged when you're seeking the Lord for answers and direction. But it's about the motives of your heart. It's not about the actual act of fasting. Because in Isaiah 58, the prophet speaks of a fasting that displeases God. Because it's more of a show and a religious formality than a, a true act of humility. And there's that word again from the heart. And, when, and I know it's not easy to fast. You know, we won't go more than a few hours without eating something. But think about that we can sometimes go for days without picking up the Bible, without getting into the Word. And yet we seem okay with that. We live off of the things of the world, maybe. Just something to think about. That's why fasting, I think, is important, because if the motive of your heart is pure, it, it shows you that you can deny your flesh and seek the Lord during those times. Because really, our spiritual nourishment is the most important thing in this world. God's going to provide our needs. And we'll see that the children of Israel weren't satisfied with what God has provi had provided for them. And I think there are lessons there for us too. So back to Deuteronomy 8, uh, verse 3 says, he allowed you to hunger and feed you manna. Now, the next aspect of God's instruction is total dependence on the Lord. Israel had only to rely on God beyond, beyond their knowledge. See, it was something that they did not know. And he had, they had to rely on God beyond their own ability. They, need to, they needed to depend on God's provision for their very survival. Now, that word allowed sort of jumps off the page at us. Why would God allow them to suffer, to hunger? You know, I think we need to see and understand a little bit about God's mind in this as much as we possibly can. You know, God allows us to hunger or to thirst or suffer or go through trials or lose our jobs or anything that we think is bad in order that he might minister in that need to us. You noticed he allowed them to hunger in order that he could feed them. There was always that response to what God allowed in their lives. And I think if, if we don't grasp anything else, I think we need to grasp that concept. And that is that everything in our lives if we're seeking the Lord, if we're his child, is filtered through his love and grace. So that anything he allows in our lives is allowed for a purpose. 
sometimes greater than we could know. But yet, God loves us. And I think we need to always be mindful of that. So as I said before, in sort of in the introduction, that Deuteronomy is a, sort of a recap of a lot of the things that occurred throughout the, first, the other four books prior to it. So if you turn with me to Exodus chapter 16... We'll sort of give you the, a little bit of an idea of what the nation was going through at that time. And we're going to just read four verses in Exodus 16, verses 1 through 4. And, and let's, let's read, and it says, Then they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So this is the setting now for what we see in Deuteronomy. Think about it, how quickly the Israelites turned from rejoicing in the victory of God over the Egyptian army to complaining and distrust in Moses. In the previous chapter, we read the song of victory that Moses sang, the song of victory that Miriam sang, and three days later, they were grumbling. First, they complained that they were thirsty and in chapter 15 in, in, of Exodus, they didn't trust God to provide or Moses to lead them. Yet, again, God's grace, he made the bitter waters drinkable for them. He provided for them in the wilderness. And then 30 days later, the people complained again because they were hungry. But God wants us to hunger after his word and righteous living. You see, it's not all about satisfying the flesh. And I think this is the lesson also that we need to see here. The problem with the children of Israel is that they hungered after their past life. They, had, they really had a misguided remembrance of life under slavery in Egypt. They were in slavery. They were in bondage in Egypt. And yet they muttered and complained to Moses and to God that they should have remained in Egypt, where at least their bellies were full. How absurd to think that they would have been better off fulfilling the flesh under a godless culture, under slavery, rather than receiving the provision that God had for them and living under his commandments. Yet sometimes even we do the same thing, don't we? See, Israel fell in love with an illusion from the past. Instead of look, looking for what God had for them in the future, the promised land, which was truly a land of milk and honey, all the great food that they would ever want 
You know, all of God's best is ahead of us, not behind us. And sometimes we think we can come out of the world and yet go back there and feast on junk food and still receive from God. Why don't we remember our past more accurately? You know, why did the children of Israel have that warped memory of life in Egypt? You know, we tend to glamorize the past life, but we forget the pain and we forget the suffering. We forget the barrenness and the emptiness sometimes. You know, we only remember the satisfaction of the flesh, the full stomach. God did take care of their physical needs as he will ours. He provided manna from heaven every day. And I think this gives us really a great picture of our daily need for his word, for nourishment from God on a daily basis. Daily sustenance in the word for our growth and for our survival. You know, Jesus tells us to pray for our daily bread. And I believe that this is a picture of our need to fellowship with Christ every day, the bread of life. And the Apostle Paul further clarifies the symbolism of the food and the drink the children of Israel partook of in the wilderness. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, really referring back to this incident, he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The rock that followed them was Christ. The manna given in the wilderness is referred to as spiritual food. And the water is referred to as spiritual drink. And by referring to Christ as the rock, listen, Scripture tells us that Jesus was present in the wilderness supplying the needs of the people. Jesus was present. And he's our rock of blessings. He's following us. And he's graciously supplying all of our needs also. You know, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. But God won't compete for your affections with the world. Israel was no longer satisfied with God's provision in the wilderness. They continued to complain. This time, this time they didn't complain about water or food. They complained about the type of food that they were receiving. And I think sometimes we do the same thing. God, give me this, bless me with this. And then when you receive it, well, God, I wanted the four-wheel drive vehicle or the 50-inch TV and not the 42-inch TV. Sometimes we're just not satisfied. So just to go back again to the previous books that explain exactly where the nation was, turn with me to Numbers chapter 11. I know we're jumping a little bit. I'm trying to keep you guys awake. Numbers chapter 11. And in verses 4 through 9, we're going to read what 
Now what the nation was doing was complaining about. Numbers 11 and verse 4 says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now the manna was like coriander seed, its color like the color of bedillium. The people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. Now, I know it doesn't sound very appealing, but it was all they needed. And it was provided by God. It was from heaven and it was by God's hand. You know, their complaint against the manna was, it's not exciting enough. It's boring. You know, if God is our provider, which he is, to despise that which God provides is to despise God. And I love the way they, and we sometimes, romanticize the past but exaggerate the present. You know, they said, our whole being is dried up. It was really an overstatement. They weren't going to die from eating the manna. God knew what they needed. And yet they complained. They weren't going to waste away in the wilderness by eating manna. And I think that's what we face from time to time. You know, we take it for granted what God provides, looking for something that we think is better. But God's provision is always best. And And I think we fail God's test sometimes by complaining about our lot in life. And if you you stayed in Numbers 11, I want to just read two verses, uh, three verses, 18 to 20. Because we'll we'll see what happens sometimes if we continue to despise that which God gives us and provides for us, not being thankful or grateful for his provision in our lives, what eventually what God does And it says in verse 18, Then you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have despised the Lord who is among you and you have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever come up out of Egypt? In today's vernacular, we continually try going back to satisfy our flesh, the things of the world, not receiving what God has for us. Eventually, those things will become detestable to us. You know, the sin we run through our mind and maybe even go back to will ultimately no longer be able to satisfy us. It may actually make us sick. You know, in in the physical realm, we may crave junk food, 
But making that a steady diet eventually will affect your health. And the same thing about our spiritual health and our spiritual relationship with the Lord. Going back to those things, not appreciating and being grateful of what God has for us, will eventually affect us spiritually. So back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're just going to finish up verse 3. Says that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. You know, our survival as children of God is not one dimensional. It's it's not enough to satisfy our physical needs. God's word teaches us that it's the spiritual things that God desires to give us and give us abundantly. You know, sadly, many even in the body of Christ, many even children of God live by bread alone, live only for material things. You know, the statement that man shall not live by bread alone is is not only a command, but it's a statement of fact. Man shall not live by bread alone. You may exist by material things alone, but you won't live, truly live the way God wants you to live. You won't have that abundant life That it says in John 10.10, the thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come, Jesus said, that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And that's not just existing. That's just not getting by in this world. That's living abundantly for Christ. That's living abundantly in the things that God wants to give us. You know, some don't live by God's word because they fight against his word. You know, there are a lot of things that we see sometimes in the word of God that we don't like. And we fight against those things. And and the reality is that God's word is really like a mirror. It reveals our true selves to us. It reveals our needs. It exposes the ugliness of our hearts. It convicts us. It rebukes us. It shows us our insufficiency. It reflects our broken lives and shows us our need for God. You know, a a verse that many of you probably have memorized in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, let's get back to the spiritual aspect of this, of this account in Deuteronomy 8, and that is that God's word should be our daily bread. God's word should be something that we, that we devour on a daily basis, something that we should desire. And God's word is living. That means it's effective to accomplish God's purposes. And it's powerful. It's power for living. It's power over sin. It's power over our circumstances. It's power over our hurts. But in order to accomplish his purposes, we need to allow the word of God to pierce our heart, to really come in and do a work in our lives. And I know that sometimes I'll hear a message or read the word of God and it will 
cut my heart. It should pierce us. You know, it shows us our true intents. It reveals our motives in life. And even when we're doing good, it shows us whether our motives are pure or not. And just one more scripture in James chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. James writes, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in the mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. And I think that's why we need God's word in our lives on a daily basis, so that we don't forget what kind of man and woman we are, so that we don't forget our need for him. So we don't forget, as the children of Israel forgot so soon after God's deliverance, and in the midst of his provision, they forgot his grace and his mercy. They forgot his love toward them. And we can tend to observe ourselves, go away and forget what we look like, forget what kind of of man we are. You know, it's like getting up in the morning, looking in the mirror and just going to work, just not, not doing anything, bedhead and everything else, not shaven, and think that we're okay. Hate to think what our co-workers would say if we walked in like that. But you see, a mirror reflects our true self, and God's Word does the same thing. You know, we, we don't like to come face-to-face with our flaws and our failures and, and those things that we need to work on, but, but God's gracious towards us. He'll reveal those things to us, and then He'll give us opportunities to move ahead in our, in our walk. And He gives us everything that we need by His Holy Spirit to accomplish what He wants us to be. Because it's by His Word that He teaches us, and it's by His Word that He cleanses us, and it's by His Word that He directs us and guides us and leads us in this life. So just to sum up, what can one verse in the book of Deuteronomy teach us? Well, number one, that God will humble us in order to test us. And that we need to learn from that testing what's truly in our hearts. You know, if we have trials or testings in our life, it's because God loves us and he wants to show us where we are so we know where we are in our relationship with him. And I think we need not to despise those testings that God takes us through. We need to learn from them. And then God will allow us to hunger But he allows us to hunger so he can feed us. And I love that aspect of our relationship with God. You know, as we long, as we as we hunger after righteousness, God will satisfy that hunger. But again, just like the children of Israel, we need to be careful what we are hungering after, what we're longing for, what we desire. You know, junk food isn't going to satisfy. It's the things of God. Spiritual food, spiritual drink. And then God will feed us. He won't let us 
go to waste in the wilderness. He'll always give us everything that, that we need. And then the third thing is that he'll always point us towards his word, which is the answer to all things, which is, think about it, it's what Jesus used in the wilderness when he was tempted. And it was, this actually part of it was this portion in scripture, in Deuteronomy. And so if Jesus knew what was needed in his time of testing and temptation, we should take that lesson from our Lord and Savior and do the same in our lives. Let's pray. We do thank you, Jesus, for your word toward us, Lord, that you've given to us.